Chapter Eleven of Yesterday Framed in Today by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. There is no beauty that we should desire him. When there was opportunity for words, he asked a question. Did I understand you to say that the stranger visits at the Rothwells? That is common report, but as I have been saying to you, I do not credit it. The Rothwells are the most aristocratic family we have, and he, well, you know what he is, but I cannot think that you realize for a moment the class of people with whom he constantly mingles. He has gathered a company of very intimate friends who are always with him day and night for aught I know. They tramp over the country holding street meetings and doing all sorts of queer things. What must a man be who chooses his most intimate friends from such sources? They are all, without exception, from the very commonest classes. The more temperate aunt found it necessary to constantly hold her niece in check. My dear, she said, did not we hear that Philip Nelson was one of the group who travel with him? I believe so, auntie, but that was probably mere gossip. You and I do not believe all we hear, remember. Philip was always an erratic sort of person, but he would hardly stoop so low as that. You ought to know, Mr. Holman, isn't he quite intimate in your family? Do you really think that he has been beguiled into this new superstition? He considers the man of whom we have been speaking a friend of no common order. David spoke with exceeding dignity, but he chose his words with great care. He was growing momently more sure that this man's friends had no pleasant path to tread. For Philip's sake he must speak with caution." Miriam gave a gentle little sigh as she replied, "'Well, it is certainly very sad to think how easily people are duped. I hope Philip Nelson will discover his folly in time to prevent unpleasant results. I always liked the young man. Of course, one may be interested and curious, and like to study into new ideas and fancies, as I presume you are doing, but to follow the man about and allow one's name to be constantly coupled with his is quite another matter. Pardon the interference, Mr. Holman, but I should think you would feel like giving Philip a friendly warning, though of course you have not had time to understand the state of things. It is really growing dreadful. Why, at home, the streets are always impassable because of the crowds around the house where that man stops. And such a crowd! Have you ever seen the man? interrupted david i oh no indeed mother would be shocked beyond rallying if i should venture into the streets at all when the crowd has possession i assure you i have no desire to see him i do not understand why the authorities do not interfere to prevent his doing further mischief they shake their heads and look unutterable things but so far as i can learn they do nothing her guest was holding himself well in check, but it was not in human nature not to ask one question more. But, Miss Brownlee, enlighten me. What has the stranger done to arouse the displeasure or the fears of respectable people? I have heard only of his relieving suffering wherever he found it. There is surely nothing in such acts to challenge the interference of the authorities. Miss Brownlee shrugged her shapely shoulders. Oh, do not ask me. You must talk with someone who is better posted about public affairs. 
i only know that some deep political intrigue is more than suspected looking into an insurrection or some horror of that sort why i think there is very great harm in gathering together the worst classes of humanity and playing upon their credulity in a way to secure an influence over them so that one would be able to move them in whatever direction he chose when his scheme was ripe even a woman can foresee danger under such conditions mr holman doesn't it impress you so which part of your statement said david allowing the semblance of a smile to appear for an instant on his grave face how to get a controlling influence over the lower classes of society is a problem which the best people in our cities have long been studying if the influence be used for good i can conceive of nothing more important well i assure you that the best people fear this man and know that the result will be anything but good you should talk with mr masters he understands the situation perfectly and is really very anxious about it auntie don't you remember what an excitement he worked himself into the other evening talking to those friends of john's who were here that reminds me of one of the stories afloat the whole matter has its ludicrous side i think though people like mr masters who have to be patriots all the time refuse to see it john came home one evening much excited over a story of a wedding reception held in some town near here i forget the name no matter the important part is that the caterers had made a mistake as to the quantity of wine and it gave out before half the guests were served and this remarkable performer turned a large amount of spring water into wine it would be economical to have him for a friend would it not david rose abruptly there was a look in his eyes that might have suggested to miss brownlee the david holman that she used to know when something had roused him to indignation he made his adieus rapidly notwithstanding the evident surprise and equally evident disappointment of the ladies over the early departure mrs brownlee followed him to the hall and made an effort to soothe the nerves that she felt rather than saw had been disturbed miriam chatters on like the child that she is she said despite the dignity of the added years since you last saw her she has heard so much about this new superstition or interest i hardly know by what name to speak of it and has been so much annoyed by several little experiences connected with it that it has made her somewhat harsh in her judgment still i confess that there are features about it calculated to make thoughtful people anxious for instance there is my john so excited over the stories he hears as to require all his mother's influence to say nothing of almost commands to keep him from joining the promiscuous crowds who follow that strange man about i am at times very greatly troubled as to what the outcome may be it is my anxiety i presume that has made miriam so emphatic and i own that i hoped you would when you came to us be able to advise us as to what course we would better take with john after you have studied into the subject thoroughly mr holman as i feel sure for the interests of the country you will do perhaps you will talk with john he is only a boy yet you know it was well for david holman that a long ride lay before him he needed the influence of the night and the solitude to help him back to the point where he could think dispassionately as he guided his horse carefully down the steep hillside 
he recalled vividly that other ride which had ended so disastrously. He could scarcely have been more wrought upon that night long ago than he was at this time, yet the two experiences were as far removed as the poles. There was no danger now of driving off the steep hillside into the ravine below. His brain was perfectly clear, yet his whole soul seemed to be in a tumult. He had never in his life been so humiliated, so wounded in the deepest feelings of his heart. Not the least of his bewilderment was, that he did not understand the reason for this intense feeling. Why should light and careless words, concerning a man whom he had seen but once, have power to sting and burn, to make him feel as though a hand he loved had reached forward and given him a mortal wound? However, before he had travelled over the miles that separated him from his father's house, he had reached a calmer mood, a mood in which he could assure himself that he had been unreasonable. It was not strange that Miss Brownlee should feel and speak as she did about an utter stranger, all knowledge of whom she had gained from sources likely only to prejudice her. Several facts must be taken into consideration. It was not heartlessness, but a dangerous talent for seeing the ludicrous side, which had called forth those mocking words that stung him most. Moreover, she was, as Mrs. Brownlee had hinted, troubled about her young cousin. From her point of view it would, of course, be disastrous to have the boy, on whom such fond hopes were centred, and upon whom such heavy responsibilities of wealth would devolve, join a travelling doctor, and roam over the country with him. Not that there was really danger of John's doing any such thing, but undoubtedly the mother was anxious, and had communicated her anxiety to her niece. Also he must remember that Miriam could not know what this stranger was to him. At this point he was conscious of making what may be called a distinct pause in his thoughts he realized that there was a question confronting him that must be answered before he could go farther in any direction. What was this stranger to him? That he should be grateful to him beyond expression was a matter of course. It was even natural, under the circumstances, that he should keenly resent slighting words spoken of him, and that he should be indignant over hints of him as a dangerous person. But all this could not account for the singular, and he could not but realize steadily increasing influence which the stranger exerted over him. He had tried to resist this influence, to attribute to it an overwrought nervous temperament, to rise above it as a sort of sentimentality, albeit he was aware that whatever faults he might have, an inclination toward sentimentality had never been one of them. But instead of being able to put aside the feeling, as the days passed, and he grew more accustomed to himself out in the world, it was unquestionably gathering force from day to day, until to be with that stranger, to hear his words and to follow his instructions, seemed the most important duty in life. Two things were definitely settled by the time he reined in his horse at the home gateway, that he would suspend further judgment, and, if possible, further thought, with regard to Miriam Brownlee, until he understood both himself and her better than he felt that he now did, and that he would, with as little delay as possible, see and hear for himself this strange teacher, 
selecting a time when he might consider himself an unprejudiced, dispassionate observer. To one other point he also gave a few minutes' thought. Several times during his call, Miriam had referred to Mr. Masters in a manner to lead one to infer that he might be an intimate acquaintance. Was he possibly more than that? And if so, was there a hint in this of possible coming sorrow for his sister, Margaret? Though he felt his pulses quicken over these questions, he made an earnest effort to keep himself entirely in the background, and think only of Margaret. After careful consideration, he felt assured that he believed Masters to be merely an acquaintance, who had distinguished himself by giving learned dissertations calculated to explain scientifically certain remarkable recoveries from what was thought to be mortal illness. He recalled the fact that Miriam had not at first remembered who her informant was, and then smiled gravely, perhaps a trifle sadly, to discover what infinite satisfaction this little item gave him. The final conclusion was that it was not possible for Masters ever to be more to Miriam Brownlee than a passing acquaintance, because she was so infinitely superior to him. Whether this conclusion was particularly flattering to his sister Margaret, he did not stop to consider, but dismissed the whole subject from his thoughts. For the next two or three days, David Holman, outwardly busy in the graperies with his father, during an unusually crowded season, was in reality planning carefully the next steps of his future course. Foremost among his resolves remained that one, to see the physician who had cured him. He had learned definitely that the man was staying in the neighboring city, which was Miriam Brownlee's home. A short journey would take him to the place, but there were difficulties in the way. He desired above all things to spare his father and mother, and especially Francis, unnecessary pain, and how to arrange even so short an absence as would be necessary, without stating definitely his object, was the point that perplexed him. He recognized the fact that his long illness, and the consequent care it had demanded, had taught his family to think and feel concerning him much as they would about a child left in their care. They could not be expected to learn suddenly that he was a man, and must be allowed to plan his life without other questionings than that which family ties usually warrant. He also recognized the truth of his father's words, though they had cut him keenly when they were spoken, that he was still dependent upon the home for his daily bread, and at least so long as this was the case, he ought to be governed as far as possible by his father's judgment. But for how long will this be possible? he asked himself with a heavy sigh. To carry out his present resolves seemed to him the first necessity of life. To boldly explain their nature to his family would bring discussion and heart-burning, possibly actual rupture. He had rarely seen his father so roused and so bitter. He stood in the doorway of the little sitting-room at the close of a busy day, sorrowfully considering the problem that he saw no way to solve, when he was made aware that his father, who sat at his little desk in the corner, was speaking to him, or at least speaking his thoughts aloud, and they were perplexed ones. "'I am sure I don't know what to do,' he was saying, and he held in his hand an open letter. "'I don't know how to put off those men, 
after writing to them myself and urging their coming. What men are they, father? And David moved toward him with an earnest wish in his heart that he might in some way be a comfort to that tired, worried man. Mr. Holman answered almost testily. He was unused to explaining his business matters to anyone. Oh, nobody that you know, men who are coming to talk over plans about the South Meadow property. I hoped to accomplish something by their coming. I have had a hard time working up their interest, and seem to have succeeded, and now comes an invitation from the largest grape-grower in Lakeport to meet him and a half-dozen other men day after to-morrow to consult about organizing a society, or a trust, or something of the sort, with a view to protecting our interests. Something of that kind ought to be done, and he is the very man to lead in it. I should like to be at the conference and get myself counted in, but I can't do it, for I mustn't be away now of all times. David tried to tutor his voice to express nothing but business interest, as he said, I see the difficulty. I am wondering if the conference at Lakeport is of such a character that your interests could be represented by a third party? It had its pitiful side, that look of bewilderment on his father's face. Who is there to represent me? I thought it possible that I might do so. You? Mr. Holman wheeled about in his chair and gazed at his son. Are you in earnest, David? Such an idea had never occurred to me as possible. But why not? You could manage the business better than I could myself, I dare say. There are technicalities and points of law to be thought about. Your legal studies would come in helpfully there, if you have not forgotten them entirely. It fairly bewilders me, though. The truth is, I cannot get used to the thought that I have a son to call upon. David's smile was good to see. You are accustomed only to a son to wait upon. I will try to show you that you have one to serve you. Who is the man who is to be visited in Lakeport? End of chapter 11